Amen. Beautiful to hear your voices singing and worshiping our great God, for he is worthy. If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we are going to be taking a short break from Genesis. As we finish this first section in Genesis, we thought this was a good breaking point um, to, to take a break and look at a topic on unity, considering all that um, is going on in transition here as uh, we uh, seek to, to plant a church and um, start a new year and uh, or go into a new year this next year, but also in these this new building and all the different things going on, uh, thought we would take a look at that over the next uh, few weeks. So Ephesians chapter 4, um, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you thanking you for the truths that we've just been able to sing to and to you and to each other. We thank you for um, receiving our prayers, knowing that you hear our cries for forgiveness. We thank you for uh, now this time that we're able to hear your word, and Lord, that you'd help us to respond to it, and Lord, in a few moments to give and um, also uh, see our brother uh, installed into the diaconate. We thank you for Nathan, that we can also do that this morning as well. And so, Father, we ask for your help in these ways. Uh, Lord, we ask not just that you would be with us, but other churches in our area. We lift up Pleasant Chapel Baptist Church this morning to you, that you would uh, be with them and encourage them. Lord, we lift up uh, Redeeming Grace Church in Cody, Wyoming, uh, another sister church in our network. We ask that you would be with them this morning as they gather to worship and seek to take uh, your gospel to northern Wyoming. Lord, we lift up the persecuted church. We know that around the world, uh, the church doesn't experience the freedoms that we do in this part of the world. And so we lift up our brethren in Morocco uh, this morning, that you would be with them, that you would help them to stand firm uh, amidst uh, many pressures, Lord, both politically and, um, and religiously from Islam and other um, just ideologies that are coming against your church. And so we pray for faithfulness for Moroccan Christians and we thank you for them. Lord, we pray that your gospel would go forth to unreached people groups. Uh, we know that a billion, over a billion people have never heard the name of Jesus and how uh, amazing that is in a, a world with technology and 
uh, where the gospel has been um, proclaimed for almost 2,000 years, that there are still places on this planet that are under the shadow of sin and under the power of Satan. And we ask, Lord, that you would take your people, your church, to these dark places, that you would shine a heart, uh, shine on their hearts, rather, Lord, to redeem them and call them to yourself. And so, Father, we uh, lift up uh, the unreached people group of the Omri people of Sudan, that, Lord, you would save them, and that, Lord, you would bring missionaries to them to proclaim your gospel to them. Lord, we uh, are not uh, blinded to the uh, troubles of our world that we lift to you. We think of uh, the refugee crisis in many uh, areas, specifically in Afghanistan and Ukraine uh, in our present day. We lift them to you, Lord. We know there's many families that are suffering, and Lord, we uh, lift them to you. Lord, we ask that your gospel would go forth in these uh, ways to these uh, people as they are uh, traveling and are in a place that is not their home, that you would help your church to rise up in these places to care for them. Father, we lift up places where um, horrible atrocities are happening, like in Burma, where um, many war crimes are happening and uh, atrocities of, of uh, ethnic cleansing that, Lord, you would uh, show your grace and your mercy in those ways. We lift up Pakistan to you that is uh, experiencing tremendous flooding and how uh, that grieves our hearts to see so many uh, lose their homes and many lose their lives. Lord, here at home, we pray uh, for our own nation and its leaders. Lord, we need your mercy. We ask for your help for our leaders. And Lord, even though we disagree with them uh, many times in the decisions they make, we pray for them. We ask that you would give them wisdom and leadership, and Lord, that you would show mercy uh, upon this people of yours. And we ask that um, you would uh, continue to lead and guide uh, this nation and your people in this nation. Uh, and as you dwell with your people in every nation, we ask for your guidance there. Father, we pray. Uh, for Kentucky still recovering from flooding and fires in California and other places, Lord, that we would not be worried about these things, but to trust you. God, we lift up those who are sick. Uh, we know several that are, are sick this morning. We pray that you would be with them. Uh, Father, for Tony Rios, that you'd be with him, that you would help him to be strengthened and then in his body. And Lord, help him to feel better. We lift up Tim Bullington as well that is sick today and can't be with us, that you'd be with him. We lift up uh, Kimberly Fenney's father, Lord, as he continues his battle against leukemia, and Lord, that you would uh, give grace to the family in, um, in many ways, Lord, in the doctor's wisdom. Father, for Mary Houck, uh, Sarah Reed's mother, that you would continue to aid them in all that uh, Mary is going through, and Lord, that you would um, uphold her and strengthen her, give strength to the family and encourage them. And of course, we've been praying from Ryan Marlowe, Lord, who we expected to uh, be dead and is uh, very much uh, alive. And they are praying that you would um, just do your work, your will in their lives and in Ryan's body, Lord. Um, we pray for uh, you to um, work in him and through him. Father, we know that he is in your hands. And while uh, from a medical uh, perspective, it looks grim, we uh, trust you and that you are able to heal him, and that you are able to bring him back. And um, Lord, we just pray for Megan as well, as she wrestles through this as well. And we pray for those who are grieving in many ways, that you would be with them and bind their hearts up, Lord. 
Father, for our worship this morning, we thank you that you have joined us. We know that uh, you are here with us because you indwell us, um, that we don't need to ever question that, that you are at work in us and through us. And so we thank you for that. Lord, as we look at this text of Scripture, would you not only teach it to us, but Lord, would you enable our minds to grasp it and that we would apply it to our hearts, that you might be glorified and we might be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at a different passage of Scripture this morning from our time in Genesis, uh, we've decided to take this short break to consider a short series on unity, to consider uh, all that the Lord has called us to, to look to Him and to Him alone in all times in His church, but even more so in times of transition, that this is important for all of us. And so while we consider even the changes that happen in our lives from day to day and uh, the changes that take place in a, a, a corporate body such as this local church, uh, we can take comfort that the Lord is focusing us uh, on that which is unchanging, which is God himself and uh, the work that he's doing in his church and focusing us in these ways. And we know, again, that uh, sin and uh, our enemy Satan constantly work to distract and divide and even devour and destroy all that God is working in and through his church, that we can faithfully trust him in these ways. And so with this in mind, we want to take the uh, next few Sundays to look at this topic of unity. And today we want to look at the primacy of unity and why God calls us to it and what we're to build that hope around. Secondly, uh, next week we want to look at how we each play our part in unity, in how God is working in and through his church. And then finally, uh, the third week, we want to look at the purpose of unity, that we are all built up together in Christ uh, to do the work that he has called us to do. And so let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning on this topic of unity. If you remember, Paul founded the church at Ephesus, and in his return visit, he did this on his second missionary journey. Ephesus became the center of really ministry work in the late 50s and early 60s AD. It was a center point between Jerusalem and Rome, which was expanding, the gospel was expanding westward. And while Paul was seeing this happen, in the midst of this, Paul is arrested and put in prison. And we might think that that would be putting, dumping uh, cold water on a fire that was obviously unquenchable as the Spirit was working and saving people as Paul was uh, continuing to plant churches westward. So in this time when he was in prison, we see the opposition of Rome. We see the opposition of pagan leaders, let alone those who were Jews that didn't want to see Christianity advance any further than it already had. But as we know, our God is unstoppable. In his timing, he brought the gospel westward and by his spirit was guiding them to go westward. And so we see churches being planted, Ephesus being just one of them. And so being in prison, Paul is thinking and wanting to encourage the Ephesians by reminding them of who they are in Christ, 
Just like his other epistles, he lays out great theological foundations, and he does that the same here in Ephesians, in chapter 1 through 3, reminding them of who they are in Christ. And then in chapter 4 through 6, he makes this practical application, which is where we're looking this morning. Ultimately, Paul's objective was to remind the church of their unity and what they had in Christ, the purpose of God, and what he was doing in the world through his church. And so it's through this large perspective of what God is doing in and through his body, the church, that we understand even on a local level what it means to pursue this same unity. And so Paul's vision for unity started and ended with the scriptures because God explains his will and his way for his church in his word. And we live in a place, in a time where division is all around us, isn't it? At times of discouragement where it doesn't seem like anybody can unify around anything. Even the church has struggled to understand what is it that we should possibly divide over or unify around. And Paul reminds us in this passage that these are the truths that we are to wrap ourselves around and never forsake. While there's minor points of doctrine that we certainly can divide over, Paul reminds us that these are secondary to what unity looks like in his body and living in a world that is divided uh, because of sin and because of the work of Satan. So when we look at practically every area of life, we don't see the kind of unity that are true, that is true for Christians. We rally around, as humans, different philosophies or ideas or agendas. But our goal, as Paul's goal was in unity, was the cause of Christ. And the truth that knowing him and really being reconciled to the Father drives us to this calling and this reminder to be encouraged and built up in these truths. Truth is important in unity, isn't it? In fact, it's essential. Charles Spurgeon once said, to pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. And you think about that. To pursue truth or to pursue uh, a unity, rather, around something other than truth, something that is true, ultimately will lead to a disaster. That the Lord Jesus calls us to unity around the truth of the gospel, and that is what we hold to. In fact, that's all we're to hold to, and everything that comes out of that uh, stems from this great truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so here, Paul, he spent the last three years uh, in, at this point, probably a building to this place where the Ephesians are. And now, finding himself in prison, he's discouraged that he can't be with them. He longs to be with them. But just an overview of what he's already told them. We don't have time to unfold all of the book of Ephesians this morning. But just an overview of what he's reminded them. He's reminded them in chapter 1 that they're chosen in him. Secondly, that they've had grace lavished upon them. That they're predestined for adoption. That they have this glorious inheritance in Christ. That Christ is indeed head over the church. That even though that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, uh, or were dead to their trespasses and sins, 
and were enslaved to Satan. Chapter two, verse three states, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. There's unity around the gospel. Then in verse chapter two, verse 10, he states, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is at work in his people to accomplish his will. And then in chapter two, verse 11, following this, he explains how God made one people out of many. He united specifically here Jews and Gentiles into one. That it doesn't matter what background they came from, if they are united in the Lord Jesus, they are to be considered one in the Lord. And as we see in the book of Acts, the church didn't segregate based upon class distinction, economics, race, social status, cultural, or whatever else that our world divides over. We see a unity here in the early church that God is working and did and accomplished in the westward expansion of the gospel. So Paul ends chapter three, notice, in a prayer. And it's a prayer for strength and for might. As chapter three, verse 18 states, he says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly in all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory and the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So that was a quick overview of chapter one through three. And Paul shifts gears here now in chapter four. Let's look at this text here in two simple points. First of all, notice that Paul lays out the practical obedience in our pursuit of peace and therefore unity. And then secondly, we see a pattern of unity that Paul lays out that is ultimately proceeding from the Godhead. And so let's look at these two points. So first of all, after all these doctrinal truths of chapter one through three, we see Paul, even though he's in prison, notice in verse one here, urge them towards practical application of those truths. You know, many times we hear a text of scripture expounded, we consider what it means, and then we would call, be called towards application. Paul starts here with application and actually moves backwards to our meaning by the end of verse six. While it is application from chapters one through three, he jumps right in here in verse one that he's calling them to respond to these truths. And how is he doing that? Look at verse one. He's telling them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Well, what is this calling? Well, we know that he's answered this in chapter one through three, which is the calling of Christ which is towards the gospel, that they are following Christ, that they are one in Christ. As he unfolded these truths to them in chapters one through three, this is what you've been called to, and therefore you are called to live according to this. Mainly, that they're God's special people, and therefore their character ought to match their confession. So Paul seeks to flesh this out. Look at verse two. Notice he mentions four character qualities that they are to have. 
He says here humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. So he's urging them to walk in this manner and he fleshes this out in these four different areas. So the fact that he's urging them upon this shows that as believers, we are oftentimes tempted to do the opposite, aren't we? In fact, if you look closely, we'll come back to this in a few moments, many of these are fruit of the Spirit. So God is in fact commanding us and Paul is urging upon us to do that which the Spirit is already working in us. We know that to be the truth. And so how awesome is it that we are called to this fact and that God uses the means of even obedience in our lives to mold and shape us towards him and respond to his Spirit. And so there's a temptation of the Ephesians, let alone any other church. We see this in Uh, at Corinth as well, towards pride and harshness and patience or even frustration. Let's take a look at these and pull these apart one at a time. First of all, humility. Literally in the Greek here, and if you dig into the meaning of the word humility, it simply means low-mindedness. Now, it's not a a sense of false humility to uh, bear upon ourselves uh, something untrue of ourselves or to talk ourselves down but rather it's a sense of low-mindedness that we are putting others first or a modest or low view of one's own importance in light of the truths of Scripture and who God is. In Philippians, Paul uses this same idea when he uses Jesus as the supreme example of humility that he left glory to become man. Familiar passage that we've looked at a lot lately in Philippians chapter 2. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice he's mentioning unity there. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. It's ultimately considering one another more important that Paul is calling the Ephesian believers to. Secondly, he moves to gentleness. Obviously, this is a fruit of the Spirit as well. This is something that ought to come out of every Christian's life, and yet Paul is urging them to it. It's encouraging to us that the the Spirit is united with us when we are have him indwelling us. This is what he's wanting and desiring to do in and through us. But notice that Paul is calling us to uh, yield to the Spirit here. He's calling us to be filled with the Spirit, as he says later in in Ephesians, that we would allow and work and unify with the Spirit to obey him in these ways. And so it says that we are called to gentleness. You know, many times in our society, we see gentleness uh, as synonymous with weakness. And that's simply not true. It's simply not what the scriptures teach. It's not a weakness, but rather a controlled strength to be one of gentle spirit. It's considerateness, if it were, to be applied to a world that's lacking in uh, this very quality. 
That God's people are to be gentle. And Paul tells the Galatians in the very part of on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 that this is what God is working out of them as well. So gentleness is really strength confined and that we are called to this even in the midst of a world that is so harsh. We just turn on the news for a few moments and we see the harshness and uh, pointedness of people's words. And God calls us to be focused, but yet gentle. So notice the relationship here uh, between those uh, fruit of the Spirit here that we see uh, both here and in other places in Paul's epistles. He's simply urging them to be what they already are. They are believers. They are sealed and saved by the Holy Spirit. God is, in fact, taking up residence in them, and he's simply telling and urging them to live out what is part of this new nature that they have received. And so this should bring us comfort as God is sanctifying us or when we are uh, confused or discouraged in our own wrestling with sin, that God is unifying his people. He's burning selfishness out of our hearts and uniting us around uh, his people. And we are called to gentleness in this way. Thirdly, notice he says in verse two that we are called to patience. He's urging patience upon them. And since we don't have a lot of time in this sermon, we'll just skip patience and move on. Um, we're, we're not patient, are we? We're not a patient people. Uh, just ride with me through downtown West Jefferson at four-way stop signs, and many of you have experienced that with me. I can't stand it. And, um, and we're called to patience, aren't we? We are called to be people that are exemplified by patience. Our Savior shows patience with us, does he not? God is so patient with us. Aren't we thankful that the Lord doesn't pour out his frustration and wrath upon us um, when we are uh, failed to, to meet all that he has uh, required of us? He's gracious in this way. He's merciful, but we ought not to take advantage of that grace, but use that grace to be disciplined by it. So if you're like me, you realize how impatient you can be. And Paul is encouraging us to build this capacity to not just accept and tolerate people, but to ultimately um, be willing to be delayed or troubled or even suffer with one another without getting angry or upset. Are we patient? Is that a quality that you would say that you are growing in or even good at? But God is calling us to this. And notice these are puzzle pieces that we'll see that are connected to what we are looking at, the topic of unity, that God is working all these individual parts into the whole. And then we'll see uh, in the next few weeks how this whole is very much made up of these individuals and their healthy attitude towards uh, the Lord. So he's building patience. And related to this is the fourth one here in verse two. The last one here, he says it this way, bearing with one another in love. So it's forbearance, but it's not simply forbearance, but notice that it's to be done in a particular way, in love. And this difference is important because in our world, we can attempt to define uh, forbearance as, as, as mere tolerance, or putting up with another person. 
And you can do that all day long, but if you're not doing it in love, Paul says we're falling short there. We're to be forbearing with one another and uh, bearing with one another in this way. And so in this context, literally, to be forbearant means to hold one another up. Not just put up with each other, but hold one another up. And so this would entail accepting each other and our own faults, our idiosyncrasies, our issues, knowing that we also have our own, and we're called to do this in love. So Paul's listing these things as imperative towards the unity that they're called to around these great doctrines that he has spent the first three chapters unfolding to us. If you are married, you understand how you're called to um, be forbearant uh, with your spouse. Over the years, you've found those things that annoy you, and yet you deeply love your spouse, and God is working that in you, and you're practicing that forbearance. But the Lord does that in other areas of our lives and challenges us to accept one another and to love one another despite our uh, other issues that are, we are falling short in. So again, the world we know cannot do that, and Paul is painting this picture for uh, a, a very important part of the doctrine of the church is that God is working a unity amongst his people that he's not doing anywhere else in the world. That Christians can unite around his gospel in a way that no one else can unite around anything. This is a huge picture of what God is doing in the world. And Paul is saying, hey, this isn't just happening at Ephesus. This letter was being sent to other parts of the area that they would be encouraged in these same truths. And he's calling them towards these practical obediences. But finally here, now let's, at the end of this first point, look at here in verse three where Paul moves to. He ties these character traits to really our pursuit of peace as another piece of the puzzle, as it were, towards unity. Notice that he encourages them not just to individually, but corporately to these same qualities. And so he says the exhortation here in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So again, they're not striving for something they are trying to gain. We know that the unity of the Spirit is something that is, God has gifted his church. That is the Spirit's work. So anything that's pushing against that, like we see in Corinthians chapter 3, there was a great sectarianism that was happening in the, the church at Corinth. If you remember right, some of them were following their favorite Bible teachers. Some were following Paul. Some were following Apollos. And Paul says, was I crucified for you? Did I do anything for you? No, we are one in Christ and we are called to not be sectarian individuals as the church. We're to rally around the gospel and accept one another and bear with one another and forgive one another just as Christ has done for us. And so remember that unity, again, is something that the Spirit is already working. And so Paul is encouraging the church at Ephesus to really, and urge upon them to strive for something that the Spirit also is already striving for in them, which I always think is amazing when we look at the imperatives in Scripture calling us to obedience. It's already something that God is willing to do in us. It's one of those things that we can pray for and we know he'll answer our prayers because we're 
walking the same direction. And that's exactly why he uses that word in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's the Spirit's active work in us and through us. And as I mentioned before, it's the Spirit's work in our lives that brings about these, this fruit. I think oftentimes we forget that God has not left us orphans. We feel the, the weight of being separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. We call out for his return. We ask him to come quickly. We know that we've been reconciled to the Father, but many times we forget that we are not left orphans. He has given us his spirit and he indwells us. And what a joy that is, that he is working. We know that he's working in us and through us by these ways. So then, Paul is reminding us that unity is held together and maintained when God's people continue to yield to him, to the Spirit's work. And it's exemplified in this other way here in verse 3, and that is it produces peace. It's in the bond of peace. And truly, of course, Christ has purchased our peace. We know in Isaiah that he is called, given the title, the Prince of Peace, that he has brought us peace with God because of what he accomplished on the cross. And so Paul is saying this should have practical implications for us as believers, that truly Christ is reigning over his church in this way as the Prince of Peace. And turmoil and division, even though they're happening in the world around us, should not divide God's people even amongst disagreements. So Paul's laid out really the practical obediences for unity, and now he switches in our second point to the pattern for our unity. Look at verses four through six. He says this. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's interesting as Paul writes this, there's really three sets of three onenesses that he unpacks here. The, literally, the pattern for unity that Paul lays out is defined and given us as the reason why believers in Christ are eager to maintain this unity and bond of peace is really how God is revealing himself to us. God's unity gives us reason to have unity. You might think of the Shema here from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so if the Trinitarian God is unified, it, is, it isn't hard to connect that God's will and work in and amongst his people is that there would be a unity that has not been able to be explained outside of God's working within his people. And so the oneness of our triune God is the very pattern Paul lays out here to show the makeup of the church's unity. Notice Paul explains these three groups in three items each. Look at the focus here. First of all, he says one body and one spirit, one hope that by which you were called. And what is that hope that he is talking about? Well, one hope that you were called, his calling he mentions in verse one, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So he returns back to the same idea, reminding them that all believers are called to this one thing, is to live out what God has worked in them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the second group of three, notice he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
And then lastly, one God and Father of all. And notice he uh, ends that with the final uh, point of three, overall, through all, and in all. So let's take those one at a time. Notice that in the first set of three, he's referring to the Spirit. The second group of three, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, how God is, God the Father is mentioned here, that is overall, through all, and in all. So let's unpack that real quick in the sense of this oneness that God is working. He says one body, obviously referring to the body of Christ. I think at times we get to a place where we are forgetting that God is working not just in local visible churches, but he's working in his church universal. And a lot of the church is already with the Lord. We tend to forget that there's an invisible church. And they're just as much as alive as we are, in fact, more so. That often we forget that we have brothers and sisters that have gone into glory. They're not gone. They are awaiting the resurrection, but we know the Lord teaches us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so one body, he calls us to unity in this way. Notice one spirit, which we've mentioned already, that God is using um, us uh, as an uh, instrument of his glory that people understand what he is like because of the body of Christ that he is working in. And so in what ways are we called to uh, talk of unity, not just in local churches, but wider outside the uh, local bodies? How we work together with other churches, for instance, how we gather together. It was awesome this last week being at a conference with over 7,000 people singing hymns to the Lord uh, across multiple um, different uh, denominational um, uh, beliefs. And so how awesome that is that God works this unity around the gospel. This second group where he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Paul is saying there's a, a supreme central focus for all of us, and it's on the Godhead. It's on the nature and character of God, and everything flows from that. That our Lord Jesus is the foundation by which we uh, all uh, confess that he is Lord, that he is coming back, that he died and he rose again. And what the, the joy of that and us surrounding behind that as our mission and as our proclamation and as our confession, how awesome it is that Lord brings oneness. Notice that he even says the oneness of faith, obviously referring to uh, how God had brought Jew and Gentile together, that they weren't two different faiths. There was the, the Christianity as it was exploding was not um, a, a new sect or even a new religion. It was a new covenant, but God was calling both Jew and Gentile to one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he mentions here also one baptism. In other words, their, their confession and their identification with Christ in his death that baptism is mentioned here. It's, it's interesting that communion is not mentioned here. Uh, the Lord's table, one cup, he could have said, or one bread. But I think what Paul has in mind here is not the, the foundation of the unity being in those things, but rather that uh, communion is an expression of that unity that we celebrate together at the Lord's table, similar to what he told the Corinthians in chapter 11 of that epistle. 
And then he ends here with uh, speaking of God the Father. One God. Again, we see that in Deuteronomy. God is one. And the great truths that we've been studying even in Sunday school that God is one, but he reveals himself in three persons. And he says, God, one God and Father. And notice that he is over all, through all, and in all. There's this all-encompassing unity of God in and through his church that we ought to be comforted by. That the very things that we see and experience together as a church, God is the one doing it and working it, even though it seems so normal or even regular or even um, just uh, uh, a regular means of grace in that way. Gathering together on the Lord's Day, praying together, worshiping together. These are not meaningless things. These are not things that we should see are rote, but rather joyous as God is working these things in us. So how do we apply these truths? He's called us to some practical implications in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 6, he's called us to the unity and understand that the very pattern of our unity comes from God himself. How are we to apply these truths? Well, first of all, I think there's the warning to those who have never come to faith in Jesus Christ that you don't have unity with God, you don't have peace with God, you don't have any of these things without coming to God on his terms and turning from your sin, repenting of your sin, and coming to new life in Christ. And so that is a, a straight application here of these truths that Paul has obviously called them to in chapters one through three, that if you don't know Christ, you don't have these things, you don't have peace. And we'd love to talk to you about that if you find yourself in that place. But for the rest of us as believers, there's some clear applications. Are we, as verse one said, living according to what we believe? Are we walking worthy of the calling that we have been called to live? Are we putting to death sin, apathy, seeking to work out the characteristics that Paul says here in verses one through three? Are we overcoming these things? Are we overcoming cynicism and pride and arrogance? Are we overcoming impatience and these other ways that push against these character traits like humility and gentleness? Are we striving for biblical unity in the context of Christ's church in general? But also I think this context of this passage is more specific to a larger view of Christ's church. Do we marginalize each other over minor points of doctrine or do we unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that flows out into the practical obedience from his doctrines of grace? Thirdly, do we major on what Paul is majoring on here? Unity is protected when we rally around what Paul says that we ought to rally around, the very gospel of Jesus and the character of God displayed in his church. And that's important for us, that Paul isn't drawing uh, minute lines of disagreement between him and, say, Jewish Christians, let alone Gentile Christians. He is saying God is at work in making us all one in Christ. And so we're called to put to death these ways that we would seek to marginalize each other as believers or even as the Corinthians were um, trying to do this even 
with uh, sectarianism and following their favorite teachers or following their favorite thing rather than thinking of one another and building unity and equipping the body of Christ and majoring where God calls us to major. Fourthly, are Christ and his gospel really enough to rally around? I think over the last few years, we have seen that conservative people like to rally around different causes, whether it's our favorite president or whether it's around uh, how we're dealing with a disease or whether we are around the social mores of our day or whether we view technology the same way or whether we rally around whatever we might fill in the blank. Christians can differ on a host of different issues, but what we cannot get wrong is our rallying point around Christ and his gospel. It is one that we cannot depart from, that that is the unifying factor that Paul thought that this was a reason to rally and that we would see Christ glorified, that we also would be satisfied in him. This is what he wanted for the Ephesians. He wanted them to grow in this unity. And so in the following passage, we'll see this in the weeks ahead, how he unravels this to to really explain to them this unity that they are experiencing will be shown in the work that the church is doing and what God has designed the church to do. As we go and prepare for a time of response to this passage, we know that God has called us uh, in his word to glorify him. And we know the great confessions always tell us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. And often we've talked about how there's a trouble with connecting this idea of glorifying God and that connected to our joy, which has been the life's work of ministries like John Piper that have suggested that instead we ought to change one word in that, to glorify God instead of saying and enjoy him, but to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Chris Green on his book on the church takes it a step further that I really like. He says, if we're to glorify God by enjoying him forever, then truly it is the great task of the church to pursue unity by glorifying God by enjoying him together forever. There's this sense that we are called to these things, but we're not to do it disjointed from one another. God is working this in us and through us for his glory to build us into one body that he could display his marvelous work in us and through us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you thanking you for your word. It is instructive to us. It is challenging to us. And Lord, we ask in these days as we... um, so, so many things are, are changing and developing here as a church that we continue to ask for your work of unifying us towards yourself, that you would let us not be distracted by all the things that are going on, and Lord, that you would help us to look to you. Father, we thank you for establishing us in this community. We thank you for uh, giving us this building by your grace that we have a home to call our own. 
Lord, that you have called us to step out in faith and uh, give uh, towards seeing another church birthed. We thank you for the way that you're doing that and even unifying that small group down in Wilkes County already, giving them a heart for their community and a heart for each other. That Lord, we see your work at, at play. Father, we ask that you would help us, Lord, as uh, the gathering church to bear with one another and, and be humble and to consider one another in all these ways, that we'd be sensitive to one another, Lord, that we would shepherd one another truly as we um, see all these things uh, in our future. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts to see our attitudes, that you would help them to be reconciled to your attitude in, in seeing uh, a one focus of your people, uh, a focus that is squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that gives vision and unity and focus and precision in decision-making. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you're working these things in us. And so, Father, as we look at this topic, would you do this work in us and through us for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen.